0: recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery this is the poetry project
1: so I'm Simone White and it's Wednesday night November 9th 2016 here at the Poetry Project um, that's for the record um, I usually I usually announce events and you know, tell you what's happening at the project. I think today I'm gonna skip it and I'm just gonna read this one poem which was on my mind today. I always put my pussy in the middle of trees like a waterfall, like a doorway to God, like a flock of birds. I always put my lover's cunt on the crest of a wave like a flag that I can pledge my allegiance to. This is my country here when we were alone in public. My lover's pussy is a badge, is a nightstick, is a helmet, is a deer's face, is a handful of flowers, is a waterfall, is a river of blood, is a Bible, is a hurricane, is a soothsayer. My lover's pussy is a battle cry, is a prayer, is lunch, is wealthy, is happy, is on TV, has a sense of humor, has a career, has a cup of coffee, goes to work, meditates, is always alone, knows my face, knows my tongue, knows my hands, is an alarmist, has lousy manners, knows her mind. I always put my pussy in the middle of trees like a waterfall, a piece of jewelry that I wear on my chest like a badge in America so my lover and I can be safe. So I'm really grateful that Anselm agreed to host this night and um, I'm looking forward to hearing what everybody who's on the bill has to say. Um, I'll just say a little bit about Anselm and say a little bit about Stacy, who's, as you know, the current director of the project and they're gonna kind of take the the helm tonight. Um, So Stacy, in addition to being the director of the project, is uh, a beautiful poet her most recent book is Journal of Ugly Sights and Other Journals. And also in the last year has published Heart Island. And there's another book coming, which is what's the title of the book, Stacey? A Year from Today. A year from today. So that's three books in the last year and a half from Stacy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, she's the recipient of a 2014 NIFA Fellowship in Poetry. She teaches at Naropa. She's a mentor for queer art mentorship. Stacy's been the director of the project since 2007. Before that, she served as the project's program coordinator from 2005 to 2007 and curated the Monday Night series. Anselm Berrigan is the author of seven books of poetry, also has been incredibly prolific in the last couple of years. Common Alone from Wave this year, Primitive State from Edge last year. Um, Gosh, there's a lot of books. Um, Also, the author of two collaborative books, uh, Loading with Jonathan Allen, and "Skazers" with John Coletti, um, and many other things. Um, Ansel will tell you more about himself. You know Ansel. Um, What else? I am just so glad to be here with you tonight. I'm so glad Anne is here.
2: Um. Thank you. Thank you, Simone. Thank you all for being here tonight. On um, uh, what was to be a celebration of, uh, or part of a celebration of, the Poetry Project's 50th anniversary, um, one of the things I appreciate about the space and the Poetry Project is it's uh, it can be pretty responsive, uh, a pretty responsive space because it prizes and values the voices of human beings and poets and artists. So I just, um, you know, we have this redefining downtown program, but I just want to encourage uh, the poets who are reading to to say and say what they want and um, what they need to say tonight, and for everybody in the audience to stay and um, drink wine and be uh, communal in this room together and, you know, I'll be here as late as I need to be so everyone can be here together. Um, I, you know, on, uh, social media today, I saw this post of something Tony Morrison said that really resonated with me, which is, um, we as writers do language. That's how civilizations heal, um, and it goes on to say, this is precisely the time that artists go to work. Um, and actually, I, I woke up from a, a text this morning that says our, our work, from from Simone saying our work has never been more important. And I was crumpled in bed. Um, and that, you know, I believe that. So I'm focusing on how we as writers can... Um, I guess this is a George Oppen thing, but restore meaning to language and precision and power. Um, How we can step up our gifts and with more urgency to kind of fight um, xenophobia and racism and sexism and these things and come up with uh, better systems for the future. Um, So we have a, you know, seven genius poets reading tonight. Um, so I'm gonna pop up, actually, not do the regular house style, but I'll pop up and introduce everybody. Um, so first is John Godfrey. Please welcome John Godfrey.
3: Good evening. Uh, I'm glad to be doing this in many ways. I am not familiar with the first, what, 36 months that the project was operating as a project, but I'd been coming in and going to events that involved group readings in uh, opposition to the war, beginning in about 65, and I began meeting people that way. And I was going to college in Jersey, and I would come in, and see some of the poets that were gonna become frequent readers here and uh, involved in sort of the, one of the families that met, different families would meet at the project. Uh, The audience would be very ecumenical. But, uh, you know, someone, he's not in town, uh, Harris Schiff, a wonderful poet, who unfortunately has had only a few publications. A great publication, if you can find it, is called In the Heart of the Empire, that uh, United Artists produced in, what, 77 or 78? Um, He used to do some of the first open readings, which were in this room. This was only used for open readings, and you had to sign up. Somebody had to come, and you got paid to come and do the sign up and run an open reading, and Harris did that and in a workshop. Uh, I shared a sublet one winter, 6970, with Jim Carroll, who used to come over here every Monday night to do the open readings because he got a little money. In the 60s, in this part of town, I've said it a couple of times tonight, there were people who were. Who were dedicated to writing in a new way from their own self-induced erudition, you know, from getting hip to things that were going on in publications. And they would account for maybe a quarter of the study. The world was small, there weren't that many people around. And uh, this part of town officially in the 1970 census was 90% non-white. Uh, if you j- went beyond First Avenue, you were getting close. And if you went past Avenue Way, you were probably outside the reach of the law. Uh, and it was very congested, very, very highly populated. There was an atmosphere around the project where you sort of felt like half the people in this room have the air of a runaway. <laughs> and almost everybody smelled strongly because the only... There, I almost I don't think I knew more than one or two people in this part of town that had a locked street door or a bathroom. You had a tub in your kitchen. You could visit people who lived in urban communes because geez, I mean covering a $60 a month rent for four rooms was a bit much, so you'd get two couples. And you'd visit and it was bath night. Everybody that lives in the apartment is taking a bath. You're walking, everybody's naked and scrubbing each other's backs. It was a kind of a weird life. <laughs> <laughs> All of these different kinds of people contributed to the world, and some of the early worlds have like 50 contributors. There were people who had difficulties, but they wrote wonderful poems, and I can remember a number of names. And there are other people that come to my mind from those days, and I'm thinking... I thought I had some book of Tom Weatherly's. A really wonderful guy and terrific writer. And uh, for some reason, I always remember how much I liked the poems of an odd, <coughs> intensely, slightly dysfunctional person. Because there were a lot of women writers. Living down here was cheap, but it was, you know the minimum wage was a dollar twenty. So you. You could get by in two hundred dollars a month, but first you had to get two hundred dollars a month. Uh, And we were total committed to being outside. And I was really, really surprised when people I'd come up with began teaching. And I'm thinking, teaching. (laughs) When I was in college, the most remote thing I, I didn't even investigate where you might go to graduate school and writing poetry. What the fuck is that? I mean, my graduate school was on East 3rd Street, St. Mark's Place, East 2nd Street. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, a two hour visit with somebody once a month could be like better than anything else. And uh, when you got like 40 pages to your entire output and you're coming in and somebody who is a venerable person, 24 years old, is giving you advice. I came around when I was 20 or 21, and there all these guys said, wow, but they were 24. You know? <laughs> <laughs> everything was very intense, and of the people that, that I congregated or, or leaned towards, probably five out of seven were daily high on a certain dose of dexedrine, and it took a lot of getting used to them. I've never liked pills, but it... it <laughs> It's a very analytic high, and they're not—they're not really convinced that they are high. It's just that everything becomes like into these ideas become concrete things. It's a clerical—it's uh, a clerical drug, you know. <laughs> you cut up—you cut up lines, and and you you take your and you sit around playing with the lines, and you end up with a really great poem. But uh, this was a very open place, and people. People came to readings regardless of social connections. It was, it was almost like going to your neighborhood bar. And a lot of drinking went on, of course. It was really cool to sit in a pew in a church. And up ahead of you is this giant cross hanging where the concavity is in the wall. And it's made out of railroad ties and communion rail. Uh, and as I said, I, I, I was coming here for readings where I would run into people Anti-war stuff was going on here. A lot of civil rights stuff was going on here. Uh, there was nothing glamorous about being around here in the 60s. Because it it sm- all you could smell was cat spray and dog shit. And you got used to living in a place that smelled of roach dander. It just became another environmental smell. And it also lent something to a lot of writing, which came from a place where the writer was not part of them, you know. It was uh, a mentality, we're not part of them, you know. It was a, lot of, a lot of stuff that you have no control over was running so badly. And it wasn't that you didn't care, it was just that you couldn't feel in yourself that you were part of that at all, because it was so foreign. Uh, and you didn't get paid. Actually, you got paid almost exactly where you get paid today. My first reading and my first reading here was in, it was always in the church, which as I say was looked like a church. Uh, 35 bucks. Now, from 1969, I figure at the minimum you got a multipl- a multiplier of five. So the 35 bucks would be like 175 bucks today. Unfortunately, in 1986, you got 175 bucks, which would be about the equivalent of $400 today. Uh, I'm very aware of my uh, inflationary (laughs) (laughs) uh, history. (laughs) And there were times in the early days when some core person really having a bad month, and they get a reading. So there was sometimes when one person might read three times a year here. Another, th- another thing that has not been repeated, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm positive. Readings used to go like this. Reader number one would read for 15 minutes. Reader number two would read for 15 minutes. Have a break, and then reader number two would read for 15 minutes, and reader number one would read for 15 minutes. And, right? Yeah. It, was, it was not institutional by any means, and there were so many readings that would go on for a year at a time in bars, it took a while to realize that, hey, this thing's going to go on for a long time. In the 70s, funding changed, and in the 80s, due to granting and whatnot, this place began to be really, really ecumenical, so that we've had a great variety in the last 30 years of kinds of writing. And I think overall, we've lost the sense of not being part of them. Or maybe younger people have a, a more difficult time not being part of them. I'd like to say one last word about downtown. When this place was started out, there was uptown, which ended at 110th Street, and the rest was downtown. There are other people who would say that the Upper West Side was uptown, but uptown and downtown Well, it meant sort of, what would I call it? Perennial, had a perennial meaning in New York. It was in the 1980s that this became downtown. I can remember seeing people getting in our taxis, and I thought, geez, these people live in a good part of town. What the fuck are they doing down here? And it was because people started investing in restaurants on Avenue A, Hawaii 5-0, stuff like that. And uh, there were galleries, you know, in the 80s uh gallery started appearing in the East Village. Uh, that's what I think of as downtown, is the things that happened with the, particularly the youth culture, because since the 1960s, youth culture has sort of generated the more income so that it's satisfied. All over the world, you go to cities, and they're satisfying a relative youth culture, meaning up to the age of 40. <coughs> but uh, this is a real raggedy-ass part of town, and everybody's... Smelled strongly and wore uh, non-uniforms. Bell bottoms was as close as you would get to a uniform. Bell bottoms and beetle boots. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, I mean, it's a pleasure to to reminisce about these things. But man, when you're young and you're in the East Village here with all the things you'd get into, there was so much more melodrama than went on here. You know, I'm thinking, about, oh my God, 1971. Oh shit. Remember, but it didn't have to do with a poetry project. And one's memory gets clouded with personal events. It was a really dramatic time of life. And uh, another reason I might be entitled to, s- to talk is that I have never lived outside the city since those days. I've been out of the city for up to, I think, twice I was out for six months. But otherwise, I've always lived in the neighborhood. I don't know how many hundreds of times you would come over here. There were times where the Monday night readings were equally important. So you'd be here Monday night, Wednesday night, and uh, you know tuning in. You're not dropping. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm followed by Ariel Goldberg.
0: I photocopied a photograph by Bernice Abbott, taken in 1937. It is a picture of St. Mark's Church, and I made 50 copies, and you can take one on your way out. Um, on the back is a caption by Elizabeth McClausen, Um That was, this photograph and the caption were edited out of their book, Changing New York, published in 1939 by Dutton. I was going to write about that photograph, but instead it's just for you to take. After Orlando, people were saying we have to do something to stop all the intertwined issues in this horrific manifestation of the daily violence against queer and trans people, especially queer and trans people of color. U.S. imperialism, military-grade weapons for sale like sunglasses at Walmart, the psyche of the prison guard in mass incarceration. While milling about at one of the two different Trans Day of Action marches, I was handed a flyer for Queer Nation's town hall meeting at the LGBT Center to specifically address gun violence. I tried to find friends to come with me. I received a few lukewarm responses, mostly I got New York City event fatigue. One friend works for Jewish Voice for Peace and said they couldn't get involved in yet another activist group. They're spread too thin. And here I was with time on my hands, not organizing and hosting readings, off from teaching. First thing I did was notice a Think Coffee in the lobby of the center. I took the stairs up to the top floor and walked into a room where I was certain at age 33 I was one of the youngest people there. Quickly shattered was my romantic nostalgic notion of queer nation. All those manifestos deriding the use of the word gay in the early 90s being passed out at protests during the height of ACT UP. I noticed how white cisgendered gay men were dominating the conversation about what type of demonstration, direct action we could collectively plan. I noticed how people were eager to reminisce about their earlier days in activism, call each other by first names, and create a club-type atmosphere that you are either in or out of. I listened to someone respond to the idea of a dance party at Trump Towers with the demand that we would have to play Latino music, especially as the horrors of the Pulse nightclub shooting were being rampantly whitewashed into generic gay bashing. I listened to a person my age stand up and say, this organization is not trying hard enough to reach out to younger activist groups of color. This comment was not followed with a response. Instead, the man who who founded the rainbow flag in in the 1970s, Gilbert Baker, was praised like a celebrity sighting. The action most people voted on was to put red food dye in the fountain at Trump Towers. I left promptly after one of the moderators announced we need to pass the hat because Queer Nation fronted $400 to rent this room that night, which included a PA system dry erase board for brainstorming and chairs. How can an LGBT center charge $400 to an activist group after the biggest mass shooting in US history? This is downtown in 2016. So that was the first part of the piece that I was gonna write for tonight. And then um, I was gonna write last night and then I was instead just looking at my bookshelf. And this is uh, James Baldwin from The Fire Next Time. Many of them indeed know better. But as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. This is Leslie Feinberg from Stone Butch Blues. I wish we hadn't traveled to meet friends at the bar in Rochester that weekend. If we just stayed home, I wouldn't have gotten busted. But that was wishful thinking. I lay on a precinct cell floor, alone in a strange city, my mouth pressed against the cold concrete. I wondered if I was close to death because I seemed to be drifting away from the world. Only two things tethered me to life. One was the feel of cold stone against my lips. The other was the faint strains of a Beatles tune coming from a radio somewhere in the jail. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I drifted in and out of consciousness. I remember Teresa propping me up against a brick wall in the precinct parking lot and assessing the damage with her eyes. She chewed her lower lip and fingered the bloody places on my shirt. I'll never get these stains out. Indirect messages cut through my fog much more clearly than direct ones. She held my, hand, my head on her lap all the way back. Her fingertips stroked my hair as she drove, pulled my head gently into her lap as she braked. And then I found myself in our home again. Teresa was in the next room. I settled into the warm, soapy bathwater and leaned my head against the porcelain. Only my head existed above the bubbles. The comfort softened me, but I could feel panic gnawing in my gut. Every time I came near its borders, I was hurled back. Fear choked me. I needed Teresa to come help me, but I couldn't call out to her. My throat constricted. Teresa had left clean, white underwear on top of the toilet tank. I dried off and slipped on a pair of BVDs. I had just pulled the t-shirt over my head when Teresa opened the bathroom door. I um, just wanted to see if we had Band-Aids, she said. And then the terrifying image I had held back came flooding into the front of my mind, the memory of Teresa's face when I was arrested. In her eyes, I had seen the pain of being overpowered and helpless. It was the way I felt almost every day of my life. And that's from Stone Butch Blues, published in 1993. And the last thing I'm going to read is um, a poem from the end of Gwendolyn Brooks in the Mecca. The second sermon on the warp land for Walter Bradford. This is the urgency, live, and have your blooming in the noise of the whirlwind. Salve, salvage in the spin, Endorse the splendor splashes, stylize the flawed utility, prop a malign or failing light. But know the whirlwind is our commonwealth, not the easy man who rides above them all, not the jumbo brigand, not the pet bird of poets the sweetest sonnet shall straddle the whirlwind, nevertheless live. All about are the cold places. All about are the pushmen and jeopardy and theft. All about are the stormers and scramblers. But what must be our season, which starts from fear, live and go out, define and medicate the whirlwind. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Arielle. Um Next up is Steven Zoltansky.
4: Thank you to Simone and Anselm and Stacey for putting on this event. Uh, this is uh, a little piece about a, a relative of mine that I didn't know. <clears throat> I never met my great uncle, my mother's mother's brother, Dick Stryker. But about 10 years ago, while visiting my parents, I found his copy of Ulysses. The inside cover was stamped with his name, and the pages were filled with marginalia. I asked my family who he was, but it had been so long since anyone had ever talked about him that they could barely remember the rumors. He was a pianist and a composer. At 18, he was jailed for being a conscientious objector during World War II. He spent two years in a prison in Ohio. When he was released, his father kicked him out of the family. He moved to New York. He was gay. He was an alcoholic. In the 80s, he burned his face off somehow, probably while freebasing. He might have been homeless for a time. He didn't want anything to do with us, his family. I started to have this fantasy that maybe he was a session musician or something, probably because this allowed me to imagine that possibility of discovering a recording and listening to him play. I wanted to feel a slightly stronger, mild connection to this person I had never heard of. As you might expect, his name is difficult to Google, there are many Dick Strikers, and they're all pseudonyms. But I did find a brief reference to our Dick Striker, my Dick Striker, participating in a Living Theatre production in the early 50s, and this led me to Judith Molina's published diaries from this period which contained frequent references to Dick. It turns out he was roommates with Molina and Julian Beck, he was part of the Living Theatre from the beginning, and he wrote music for a number of their early plays. Unfortunately, the diaries don't provide too many personal details, but the glimpses into the company he kept suggest he lived an active artistic life, despite his eventual obscurity and vanishment. He hung out with Ashbery and O'Hara at San Marino, he went to Joseph Campbell's birthday party, he played on one of the radios in the first performance of Cage's Imaginary Landscapes 4, he studied with Lou Harrison, he wrote the music for one of Jackson McLow's plays, and Larry Rivers played the saxophone on the recording. I have no idea if this recording still exists, probably not. He attended anarchist meetings. He dated a poet, Harold Norse, who seemed to treat him pretty badly and repeatedly broke his heart. Norse did publish at least one poem for Dick, but it's really not very good. He had difficulty finding work because he was a felon. He washed dishes. He frequently missed out on attending or participating in concerts because he was washing dishes. The most moving anecdote in the diaries is a prank. Dick and Judith attend a seance, but he won't behave. He can't take it seriously. He continually acts up. He he spells out evil messages on the Ouija board for fun. He repeatedly spells hate, and he's kicked out of the seance. I've never felt so close to someone in my family. On the one hand, I simply love that he's made a life so far from his conservative suburban roots, that he's conjuring spirits with weirdos in the East Village, participating in things that people in our family would find pointless, unproductive, a waste of time, unusual, unreal. But even better, I love that he refuses to play along, that he fucks it up, that he throws cold water on everyone else's optimistic spiritualism with a harmless and slightly si- and, and silly but slightly mean joke, the best kind of joke. In the mid-50s, he and Melina have a fight, he moves out, and his name doesn't appear again in the book. I emailed Judith. She wrote back immediately, excitedly, telling me she was so happy to hear from a relative of Dick's. He was a dear friend, but then he dropped out of her life. He dropped out of everyone's life. She didn't know what happened to him. No one knew what happened to him. She was eager for news. She wanted me to put her in touch with him. She wanted to see him again. I wrote back and said, no, there's a misunderstanding. He's been dead for 15 years. I don't know what happened to him either. That's why I wrote. I was hoping you had more information about his life, memories, anything. I'm curious about anything, any little detail. I want to know what he was like. She never responded. I asked my grandmother about Dick. When they were young, they were very close. He was a musical boy. He loved Wagner. She hated Wagner. But she didn't know anything about his adult life. The last time she saw him was at their wedding in 1948. I told her I learned more about him. I told her that he moved to New York and hung out with artists and writers that I admired, people I unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully tried to copy in my own writing, people from a certain bohemian milieu considered very important by artists today. She said, but I don't know why he never came to see me again. I don't know why he never called me. I don't know why he never answered my letters. I don't know why he stopped talking to me. She didn't look at me. She repeated these things a few times. She repeats a lot. She's 94. She forgets quickly. She forgets what she said. A few years ago, I met Judith Molina at a screening of Flaming Creatures and I introduced myself as the great nephew of Dick. She was 86 and had difficulty following what I was saying, but at the mention of her old friend, she became flustered. She told me repeatedly how much she loved Dick and how much I looked like him. You look just like him, I'm so happy to see you. You have his hair, you're bringing back memories. I miss him, it's been so long, I really miss him. I was happy to be told I looked like Dick. It made me feel like we were linked, like there was a loose animated connection between us, more basic than my occasional shallow curiosity about his life, a living piece of him hidden in me that I was about to discover. But when I proudly told my grandmother about this, she was baffled. You look nothing like him, nothing at all. That's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. (laughs) Via a set of convoluted family documents, I was able to track down two of Dick's surviving friends, And they told me what they could remember or what they wanted to tell, lingering on the faded fame of the moment, the proper names, but also, more bittersweetly, on the consecutive sadnesses of Dick's life, while repeatedly making it clear that they didn't know everything, he was private, he didn't talk openly about his life, there was a lot they didn't know. I was disappointed that neither of them commented on my resemblance to Dick at all. This is what I learned from his friends. He was a happy young man, he was jovial, he had lots of friends. The fact that he had actually been to jail for his beliefs made a big impression. People looked up to him. He was active in the pacifist movement. He knew Bayard Rustin from political meetings. He became interested in Gestalt psychology and was a patient of Isidore Fromm for a time, though nobody knows how he could afford it. He always hung around poets, but he was never interested in reading poetry. He had some early success as a composer. He wrote an organ passacaglia, which was performed by a famous organist whose no- name nobody remembers. At Columbia University, The orchestrated version won third prize from a music foundation and was performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in a rehearsal. Dick's friends pooled their money to send him to Chicago to hear his music, but they didn't have enough. At this point, the story gets hazy before getting clear again. His his love life was so tumultuous that he stopped focusing on composing. In the late 50s, he was having an affair with a poet named Murray Hargrove. Hargrove had a wife and kids who he didn't want to leave, but his wife knew about Dick and they were all close. When Hargrove's family moved to San Francisco, Dick moved with them. That didn't go well. Dick moved back to New York. He remained close to Hargrove, who died of leukemia a few years later, maybe in Vermont. Dick visited him many times while he was dying. After that, his love life remained unstable, though I don't know all the details. I wish I did. I want to pry. Then he almost died in a fire. His friend told me, the fire was probably in 1971 on Perry Street. He was smoking and fell asleep, and it started. He tried to get out, but he couldn't get the bars out of the windows. The firemen broke in and found him badly burnt and unconscious. They said he had actually inhaled flame. His lungs were charred. He was disfigured and they had to reconstruct his face. They sewed new eyelashes on. They built a new nose using skin from his arm. They attached the skin from under his right arm to his nose and then held his arm over his head for three months while the skin fused with the skin on his face. He always looked disfigured after that. The joints in his fingers were burnt and no longer worked. They had to cut the joints and remake the fingers. His fingers were bent back for the rest of his life. He gained a lot of weight after this because he was not very mobile. He couldn't walk. He spent a total of about 10 months in the hospital, The fire probably destroyed most of his scores. When we visited him in the hospital, he was unrecognizable except for his laugh. He couldn't work and he lived on disability benefits. He became a loner. He refused to see many of his old friends because he was ashamed of his face. Sometimes he would visit his brother, who was a dentist, to get his teeth done and he would return from these visits disturbed and enraged. He never mentioned his sister and his friends didn't know she existed. Mostly he stayed indoors and listened to Renaissance music. He ended up running his apartment building when the landlord absconded and the other tenants voted Dick in charge of using the state funds to make the repairs. This is something his friends told me. One of the few pieces of music he wrote after the fire was for a doctor named Dr. De Filippi. When he was slipping in and out of consciousness in the emergency room, he said that every time he woke up, Dr. De Filippi would be sitting there praying for him, even though he didn't know him. He might have credited this praying with saving his life. Maybe it was a religious conversion. He remained friends with De Filippi. Later, the doctor's wife was murdered and Richard wrote him a piece of music as a gift or as an elegy. A few years before he died, He fell down the subway steps. The station was missing its handrails because of construction. He was badly hurt, and he sued the city. This money made his last few years easier until he got lung cancer. He was in chemo, and he was doing well, but then he caught a cold. This whole story is an excerpt from a longer poem, not all of which is about Dick. I decided to read it at this event because I thought it might be useful in light of our nostalgia about New York's artistic past, its former affordability, its space, the hipness, et cetera, to tell a story which also illuminated how this mytholo- mythological New York was already like impossible for most people who lived here. We live in a city and in a system in which many people fall through the bottom in many different ways, not just artists and writers, of course, but since I'm at the Poetry Project, that's what I'm talking about, the people who are excluded based on their identity, the people who had to work and so couldn't produce as much, the people who got sick, the people who fell in love and just stopped writing. I worry that when we mythologize the old New York, we're participating in a bootstrap narrative where we're really just celebrating the people who made it, the people who got out of that impossible situation and so who we remember and read now. But on the other hand, there's a positive aspect of this nostalgia. The institutional work that the Poetry Project does through this nostalgia is also which keeps this writing in the memory of these many writers alive, people who would otherwise not not be as well read. Speaking as someone who came to New York as a young writer, this was one of the places where one learned about those people that you would never have heard of, a place where people repeated their names, rehashed obsolete gossip, read poems that not as many people read. Some of them were great writers, some of them are just okay, some of them are people who wrote a few cool books or poems, and some of them are people who were excluded based on their identity, the people who had to work and so couldn't produce as much, the people who got sick, the people who fell in love and just stopped writing. Thanks.
5: Thank you, Steve. Next up is Erica Hunt. Um, Thank you, everyone, and thank you, uh, Stacey, Simone, and um, Anselm for organizing this. Um, Also to the other readers. Blue Downtown. So it's November 9th, so that's what this is about. What does it mean for the poet you know, pose the opening question. What does it mean for the poetry project right now in the East Village in 2016, which is or was considered downtown at points? Is downtown a sign, a sigh, a thing, an act of nothing or something else? Can we have a retrospective season and dissolve nostalgia at the same time? So some data points. Um, (laughs) Just some basic data points. Yes, I, I think I got back to New York. I'm a native New Yorker who got back here in 1983, after living in the Bay Area for a time and um, moved into the East Village, I think in 87. Started coming to the Poetry Project in maybe, uh, let's say 1980. I remember the Orchidia after readings, which was just down the street, the telephone booth. I um, Raised two kids here. My kids went to Little Missionary Nursery School on uh, St. Mark's Place and 10th Street Tots. Um, All locally schooled. And um, I'm trying to remember when was the fire. Okay, so I was here before the fire. So that so that's even earlier. And then um, (laughs) there, I was a baby poet like this, a baby poet. And, um, and among my um, mentors and um, luminaries, Anne Waltman and Eileen Miles and Ed Friedman and Anselm and Stacy and Dale Orlandersmith Smith and John Godfrey and Charlotte Carter and Patricia Spears Jones and Jessica Hagedorn and David Henderson and Bernadette Mayer and Jackson McLow. But the, pro- the project wasn't the only place to go hear poetry. There was also a lot of other venues. Um, I mean, uh, PS-122 and Charis and ABC, all of those ghost galleries now that haunt the place. So I wasn't sure how I was going to answer this question when I received them. Initially, I thought, downtown doesn't exist anymore. Downtown is dispersed. It's all over the country, if not the globe. Downtown as a neighborhood in Manhattan is dead. Long live downtown. And that was before last night. I now realize my analysis of a geographically dispersed downtown did not go far enough. Sure, I can point to the DNA of downtown dispersed in places like Tuscaloosa, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Tucson, Chicago, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Staten Island, and the Bronx. Oakland, Berkeley. Growing in the eco climate of those very vibrant places, downtown morphogenesis, morphogenesis, adapting to people, new places and cultures, the built environments, half lots and shotgun shacks, arms with bungalows, poetry caves, dive bars, are the traces and residues of the new downtown formed in the petri of new cities wind-borne or mind-borne seeds pollinated by books, communications, workshops, and exchanges. But even that view is too simple. You see, people make a network occur (coughs) and they bring places that have been important to them, with them. People are impressionable and poetry makes an impression in visible and invisible ink. Here is a different view tonight given by the cataclysm given after the cataclysm of the American elections, seen from where I woke up this morning from under the rubble. All week I was losing sleep. I was eating food without noticing what was on the fork, the plate, right before my eyes. All week I didn't want to walk around and see what was in front of me on the streets. I didn't want to do more than be in the bathosphere, the streets in suspension, a fish, among other fish, looking at the fish while gravity sinks silent. I confess that I'm given to Afro-pessimism that runs fathom deep in my psyche. Unwelcome second sight, gentle undertow that threatens me even when at my most buoyant in our moronic republic. Never easy to forget white supremacy, that putrefying accessory of American life. Hard to leave the house without encountering (coughs) someone wrapped in its scabrous stole. But by now, you would think I would learn to pay attention to my gut. Last night, I watched the election results trickle in, texting with up to 10 people at the same time, on the phone with a couple of them, keeping hopeful until about 1.30, I realized that I was going to need a hope for which I had no name as yet. And I will say here that I woke up with a head aching from anxiety the weight of this new shade of American white supremacy and misogyny, the difficulties ahead for all of us who need access to health care, voting rights, climate change policy, criminal justice reform, gun control, and an ocean of unshed tears. Here's what helped me cry, and to cry well, enough to speak tonight. So uh, I looked at my Facebook in the morning after four hours sleep. <coughs> um, someone had, and then organizer I knew, um, she's Cheyenne Weber, who's organizer for Solidarity New York City. I sent it to a few people in this group here. I was like, this is what I need because it helped me cry. And I needed to drink water. No, possible acts of love for ourselves and each other in a state of emergency. Key words, keywords here are um, where are my keywords? My keywords are, um I I was here. Keep states of emergency, learn people's names, organize as you would in a natural disaster, take a hard look at what's at stake. Possible acts of love for ourselves and each other in a state of emergency. Drink water, breathe deep, sleep, Eat, exercise, make sure others do the same. Now is not the time to self-destruct. Gather in large groups, general assemblies, faith ceremonies. Gather to feel feelings and find each other. Mourn, organize. Be the solution to the fear and the threat. Learn people's names. Such a simple thing. How often do... We get into crowds and we don't even know the names of the people we're sitting with or we see all the time. Organize as you would in a natural disaster, checking on every single person. How are you doing? Take a hard look at what's at stake together. Map out the services and care we are going to need to provide for each other, set up systems, might be a food pantry, reproductive health services, sanctuary for immigrants, community safety escorts for targeted groups like Muslims, poetry workshops. Learn to obstruct, that's going to be our primary strategy. Learn how others have obstructed in the past and choose tactics that work for your people. What kinds of resistances are on offer? Build network and movement. It won't be funded, but it will be everyone. Think general strike. When do we shut this shit down? What is your community's emergency? Write those out and get agreements from people to support each other's emergencies. If we treat this as a natural disaster, if we see those impacted and we meet the need, If we build our responses to meet concrete material need and through involvement with many volunteers, we can make the worst of this untenable for those who are charged with the operations of fascism. And uh, where we are is kind of close to that. We are the resistance, let's hold the line, let's do it with common sense love. Let's build connection, small steps taken as a collective. So downtown, to answer that question, what is downtown? You know, it's not so much a place as it is a series of relationships. And uh, it's how you tend to those relationships. That's what keeps the downtown going. Keywords, learn people's names, name this new state of emergency, look at what is at stake together, especially for the most vulnerable, network, resist, obstruct, hold the line, love. And so a poem to finish this off. When I want I when I so want a bell to call me and I am beset by my own tied tongue. The drawbridge between what I mean to say and the wreckage of split syllables detour. Tell me words attire a thought on a silent morning when who knows what's next. I want noise. I want noise again, my preconceived bed to tomb ideas, I want noise with no surname, no patronomic. Where is that noise coming from? I want to ask risk parting with heartbeat, eyelid flutter. Where's that noise coming from? Or going to the trail between the broken forest and the trees? I ask, where's that noise coming from? And I understand now. The origin of my bones pop on waking, its finding tune in temperature. The mass of laissez-faire spiraling along the spine. The curve of my perpetual hunch over the glowing embers of my screen. No one knows where the noise comes from. It is speaking mostly in drum. From the cavity of my chest to yours, our best guess. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Erica. Um, next up is Sophia LaFraga. Um,
6: hi. Um, what's it called? It's been really. I've. I personally have been having a really hard time. Um, like making like sentences today. So. Um, But so I wanted to start um, just open with this Bernadette Mayer poem um, that I've been thinking a lot about today. The Way to Keep Going in Antarctica. Be strong, Bernadette. Nobody will ever know I came here for a reason. Perhaps there is a life here of not being afraid of your own heart beating. Do not be afraid of your own heart beating. Look at very small things with your eyes and stay warm. Nothing outside can cure you, but everything's outside. There is great shame for the world in knowing. You may have gone this far. Perhaps this is why you love the presence of other people so much. Perhaps this is why you wait so impatiently. You have nothing more to teach. Until there is no more panic at the knowledge of your own real existence. And then only special childish laughter to be shown. And no more lies, no more not to find you, no more coming back and more returning. Southern journey, small things, and not my own debris, something to fight against. And we are all very fluent about ourselves our own ideas of food, a wild sauce. There's not much point in its being over, but we do not speak them. I had written the man who sewed his soles back on his feet, and then I panicked most at the sound of what the wind could do to me if I crawled back to the house. Two feet give no position, if the branches cracked over my head and they're threatening me, if I covered my face with beer and sweated till you returned, if I suffered, what else could I do? Um, so what I had prepared for um, tonight regarding redefining downtown kind of uh, made me think of what Erica said um, about how downtown, I mean, to me, I was also born and raised in New York um, and came up in the New York scene and stuff, but downtown kind of always felt to me, like Erica said, like a series of relationships. And I feel like that for me right now is happening a lot, like online and on Twitter and when, we got these questions to kind of think about today. I was thinking about um, this question about do poets need locations to experience work out front and how kind of, um, I mean, this is gonna sound super flippant now considering the fact that like Trump is president and things are like feel heavy now, but I meant this as like a fun, just kind of whatever thing that I had done. on Twitter where I feel like me and my friends hang out and talk and shoot the shit about language. Um, we, the poet Ben Fama, last week, um, challenged me to um, hashtag get a book high, which was in his mind um, playing on book titles and trying to do like plays on words on them. Um And so that's what I wanted to present to you, to show you, to share with you guys, I guess, today, were some of those, um, what came out of that game and invite you guys to participate as well on Twitter, using the hashtag, get a book high. So on October 31st, and this, what really surprised me about this, um, I guess, and why I was moved to kind of do a whole thing about it was that um, it, it started off as, like, a, a just a game between um, Ben Fama and me, but then it, it evolved into, like, 30 or 40 poets participating and us having, like, just tons of laughs over, like, kind of what ended up being a collaborative poem of, like, 200 different lines and lasted, like, 10 days and it's still kind of going, so. Um, so, anyway, so um, Ben's original kind of post was to me, do you want to start a hashtag campaign with me called hashtag get a book high for example the sun also blazes I thought of this in my sleep and so I said that's way too easy let's go and then everyone chimed in and here are some of my favorite of those responses a shroom of one's own (laughs) the pound and the fury Mary Jane Eyre the fountain head shop The year of magical tinctures. The rolling of joint 49. The crying of lot 420. Infinite joint. No one bongs here more than you. The hemptation of Saint Blunthony. He's just not that into getting high with you. Planet of the vapes. Thus smoked Zarathustra. 100 years of solitude. Or has it just been five minutes? One hundred spliffs in solitude. For whom the bell tokes. War and peace out. War and peace pipe. Madame Bogarty. In cold bud. A passage to indica. Their eyes were getting red. Edible wrecks. Blaze High the Roof Beam Carpenters. Ganja with the Wind. (laughs) The Ounce of Monte Cristo. Don Quixote de la Ganja. How to Grind grind Friends and Indica People. A Blunt to Remember. A Bend in the Roach. Weedith's Diary. Marijuana Karenina. Chronic of a Death Foretoked. The Baking of Americans. Smothered in Nugs. The Weed Jar. The Wasted Land, Four Quarters and Other Poems. Paris Spliff. The Indocean of Annette. The Curious Incident of the Bong in the Nighttime. Spliff on a Winter's Night, a Traveler. If on a winter's night, a stoner stopped in for a quick sesh. The tale of Ganji, the hotbox car kids. I know why the dank bud sings. Dude, everything is illuminated. (laughs) Dubliners, the heart is a lonely one hitter. Remembrance of things cached, bongs fall apart, love in the time of legalization, (laughs) bud in the time of cholera, bender buttons, the Argonugs, American puff puff pastoral, breakfast at spliffinies, the dime bag opera, Eros the bitter swag, my brilliant fiend, a lover's dubes course, red bud of courage, as I lay blazing, dabsalom, Dabsalam, the old man and the THC, <laughs> waiting for good dro. Um, The Stoned Lecturer, Munchies Poems, Eat Blaze Love. Legalization and its Discontents, The Audacity of Dope. Strangers on a Strain, Night Weed. Finnegan's Wake and Bake. (laughs) 1984-20. 1984-20. <laughs> Bong of Solomon, Ulysses, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Sophia. Um, next up, Anselm Berrigan.
7: I wanna read the description of the event. Participants will answer some or none of the following half-questions. What's it mean for the Poetry Project to be the Poetry Project right now in the East Village in 2016, which is or was considered downtown at points? Is downtown a sign, a sigh, a thing, an act of nothing, or something else? Can we have a retrospective season and dissolve nostalgia at the same time? Is there anyone out there listening at all? If so, peace. Do poets in this town still need real physical centers? to go experience the work out front, and what does need mean, and what does real physical centers mean, and what does out front mean? I sort of wrote that, typed that fast in the office, and I was just thinking, well, all these people that we asked who are here tonight to say things, I just wanted to hear what they might say in relation to these things, whether they wanted to actually address them or not. And then getting close to it, I had to write something too, and I wrote something yesterday And then last night happened, and then I had to look at it today and figure out if I could read what I wrote the same way. And I decided, okay, I'll do that and add a few things. So I'm going to try to just read this thing that was written yesterday, as if yesterday and today are not the same day. And yet they are not. But I wanted to focus on the question, and what does need mean? Because that's my question for me here, because my relationship to this place is sort of beyond ob-subjective. And what does need mean? Having written the some or none questions to be addressed and ignored and otherwise dissolved behind us as prelude, I have to note I should have said something other than East Village, which is a real estate term designed, and it did so successfully. To subdivide the Lower East Side and Greenwich Village simultaneously back, oh, about 30-plus years ago, and maybe it's not inaccurate to place the what's-it-mean question in a real estate context, but the term East Village feels shittier and shittier to me by the day, and downtown is another play on dislocation anyway. Do you feel as if form has collapsed? If so, you can't be a pigeon, alas, as I imagine for pigeons downtown is sign sigh, thing act of nothing. And something else all at once. I can imagine, can't I? Adaptably, post-pragmatically, wondering what realism means to me. I don't think the church roof leaks as much as it used to. I can't remember if the clock tower has ever really known what time it is since that lightning bolt struck it some 17 years ago. It's possible Lamentia is still reading somewhere on this very spot. With anyone out here or is it in there listening at all? You do still get to say, even the day after election day, peace, if so, no? The question of need means gets bound up with what care means, and that's no way to do this. I wondered for a long time and still do inside and around my privacy at times, whatever that isn't, and it highly overused and floating, that it mostly isn't. Most of what I do is listen. Most of the time I've spent in this space, I've spent listening listening to poets, hundreds of them dancers, prose writers, painters, comedians, eulogizers, heartfelt jack-off posers, cab drivers, black angel wing wearing anti-Giuliani ranters and half Japanese, half English. I hosted the open mic here for two years. Gossipers at breaks, accusers, hecklers, Jimmy the Sexton's constant whistling by day, anxious amused murmurers among the among the few's who accumulate into so many, you wonder how so much listening can get done by so many micro slants on the wing. Back up, back to need, what that may be, because I've listened long enough to know I need to be doing it, to practice listening, to get better at it, and get at getting it better in the fucked-up constellation that is your head becoming poetry, and to be encouraged by the mess and the many responses of which hate, or let's say today, anger, fear, disconsolation is one of many. Why be afraid of hate? It is only there. I keep listening to a man I never knew say, I want lately to find out why in poems space is not an illusion, why when it's working you're put right there immediately, unconditionally, and then you have to move, however bewildered or maybe because you are, because I know in the sudden sharp jab of recognition and what I think when I think about sex, it ain't necessarily death, I mean I know it quite precisely parallel to doing it. that. It only gets to be happening when I'm listening, and I go to places where listening is actually the point. And there aren't many places, there aren't that many, that want more than the show of listening, that don't let language get so disconnected from reality, all you're stuck with is definition as another emblem of fear. I keep going and coming back to this place for that. And by the way, you do get... right... How truly fucking strange, if ordinary, it is to be breathing, here, doing this, with a voice. But one might need to do that. Have it be given that one can do all that and without conventions. The old ones, the currents, the ones placed in your head by you or anyone else. The theoretical, philosophical, political, behavioral conventions dressed up in the costume of underpinning. The being in a group con, the lonely, awful conventions of eminent anonymity. The lonely, awful conventions of anonymity. You ever wonder if your muse isn't the landlord? Everything I'm pulling from the register is a question. I come here to listen without, without convention, to listen against, to listen for conventions lack, to hear it, the art, its offshoots, foils, companions, and highly troubled organs disappear by doing, being in that it's easy to do and gets harder as the shapes get shapelier you really think language failed? How come it's language, not words? Because words aren't language. Because maybe you seed so much of what possibility is to bubbles of discernment, to representation, to instant understanding. I think I need to not know in order to listen. To begin, it all pours in then. I need things that don't go together to be put in time together, and I do need that out front. I remember sitting in this room in 1987, not quite 15, sobbing uncontrollably at my half-sister Kate's memorial. She'd been hit and killed by a motorcycle not a week earlier in Houston Street, coming over to take my brother and me to a movie. I remember wondering if I should get up and say something. Inside all that crying, what I felt was the impulse to put some words in the air. Then it was as if I didn't speak for another year, and that's a feeling, not another fucking metaphor. Is there any metric for how much pain this room has absorbed and had reconverted into music, In the humor, among other wild kindnesses? Penniless politics always said music is shorthand for prosody. You'd be right to paint the word unobjective on my face. I have often sometimes wished there was something like the reading channel and I could turn that on and listen without transporting via feats. My personally bent frame to the reading itself, since I'm weirdly bad at listening to recordings of poems, maybe because I'm not present to let my nerves—that's right, I'm nervous when other people read their shit— get defeated by what actually fucking happens, even if it's the lamest thing in the world, though sometimes lame is better than boring, and I'm not sorry to say Boredom is a bit of a professional value. Plus that whole fail better thing, you feel good about that right now. And you know, it's kind of cowardly to just stop, and oh, make an industry out of supposedly stopping the swallow as fact. What, you think I could be especially coherent today? What did the self-composed monster maker say? The world today doesn't make sense, so why should I paint pictures that do? Where was I, busy being told to decompose? I know I got 10 minutes, but this sketchbook, which I bought for eight bucks today, the day before the time I get to say today and have it both be in mean and now machine as kind of short pages, which is a problem I'm counting on. Ted Greenwald was the one who said the project's about putting the work out front. And if you want an ecstatic and devastated or joyful and perennially disturbed, distressed life, well, we get that anyway. I'm hearing that sense of, it has to be, the shit has to be, the mind of such nameless depths that being serious is just one of many ordinary facts of commitment and not some dolled up badge of complexity. That's a tricky, difficult, old, inherited, useless, changed, rearranged by me, no. When did change just become rearrangement, which is really richer, riskier? You leaning on implied or unemployed meaning? The web's old enough to be another virgin version. The web's old enough to be another version of aged thing. If I wanted everything so flat, I'd have done better in my life by way of hopeless addiction. I come to things here because this place has been imperfectly available to care and care for. That's always run through an interconnection of mouths that care, dangerous reflex. You wonder who's going to challenge you to adapt you wonder if the adaptation proposed if so ain't as slow as your own evolution are we supposed to turn into birds again lives go where there's no forms that leaves us where to go another kind of pain the living question here like anywhere that's fought, however knowingly and unknowingly, for the right to be itself on its own terms, which only means letting the folks who care enough to really come through figure out how to do that, too, without much interference, here has to be able to freak out on itself out of loyalty to itself, itself not being made of any singular thingitation. Here's another kind of question. My mom, being a poet who lived in this city, in this particular neighborhood for parts of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, who still visits a few times a year, who said she wrote things to be read and listened to specifically in this room, and who shared a birthday yesterday with the anxious horror of our planet wreck of an election, once said to me on the phone, I can't find out what the streets of New York look like by reading anyone's poems anymore. She didn't mean what they seem like feel like, but what they look like. You ever try to describe a whole street? I assumed I had to try and wound up sitting down on one of the benches out here on the corner of 10th and 2nd and wrote the following, which is no consolation, but was never meant to be, what the streets look like. Mom. The sweet, rotted summer stench still taps the nasal cavity inside breezes several times per block. I have a greater empathy for pigeons after two months at work in the unnatural country and find it instinctively nerve-wracking to remove my wallet from its pocket here in town, despite the general lack of threat. The streets look gray, nonplussed, postpubescent relative to ancient times, but nonetheless grid wizened in the face of an ever-changing lineup of banks, bars, and specialty shops with their weak signs and distant tones lighting. Second Ave is giving up slowly its cheap depth, storefront by storefront. One feels less than nostalgic for the likelihood of being mugged, but likelihood itself feels less than evident, unless one is unstable unspoken coming to dreaming pushing a stroller over variously cracked slabs of concrete each block yet greets the wheels with the right part of the Y heading west on 10th between 2nd and 3rd is still tree-lined and aristocratic as faint though its sidewalk looks like late autumn smoked cheeks I loathe it amiably when Sylvie's asleep I can't end this with that I don't want to end with loathing, so I'll read this poem by my stepfather, Douglas Oliver, who lived here in NYC in the late 80s and early 90s when death seemed everywhere and to walk down the street, our street, was to daily take on a gauntlet of harassment and possible violence and the politics so often felt hopeless. This written here, I believe, is called For Kind. Kindness acts idly or unnaturally leads you into fear, act in kind. Kindness makes you idle, worse, unnatural. Don't be afraid of the darkness of kind, for it's the birth darkness, vertical twist of opening lips in the night. Life that follows belongs to you in kind. Don't be frightened of darkness of origin. It is this darkness, similar tints of our flesh in the night of kind, the kind you are, with slim mammalian chest and walking to the bathroom hip swag, how naturally your walk sways in kind. You are human kind, my kind, kind to me, born well and gentle. We believe in kind. Birth, origin, descent, nature, sex, upbringing, race, our natural property, so many things we naturally have, and have no need to struggle for, merely out of kindness to each other, or worse, to struggle for unnaturally. Please welcome John Young
8: I feel like a piker being the last one. <clears throat> I first sat in the rectory of St. Mark's Church on February 4th, 1970. It was a Wednesday. I was 19 years old. I had come down from Bard to attend the memorial reading for Charles Olson, but stopped to see a movie, Fondo and Lise, written by Fernando Arabelle and directed by Alejandro Hordorowski. I got to the church after the service had started and hurriedly sat down in one of the pews near an unkempt man in a long, catty overcoat. He was clutching a paper bag containing a bottle from which he occasionally took a healthy slug. How nice, I thought. Here's a church that'll take anyone in. This was the place I was looking for. It turned out that the man was Ray Bremser, an ex con and poet who got up and spoke fondly about Olson. The other poet I remember from that day was Diane Wachowski, who pointed out that she was the only woman speaking at Olson's memorial. Fondo and Liss, Hodorowski's first full length feature, is a black and white film in which Fondo pushes Lists in a cart. She's paraplegic, down into a strip mine, looking for the city of Tar, where everything comes true, and which they never find. Almost no one liked the film, but I didn't know any better. I got the reference to Dante and the descent into hell, and that was enough to get me through an afternoon showing in a nearly empty movie theater somewhere in, the Gren- in Greenwich Village. I had seen the name Arabelle on the marquee, and that was enough for me to buy a ticket, knowing I had a couple of hours to kill. The next time I remember sitting in the Poetry Project was in 1976, when I gave a reading with Paul Kahn. Paul read first, and it seemed important to him that he read all the poems in his book, which had just been published by David Wilkes Truck Press. I'm still puzzled as to why he thought he should do this. The longer Paul read that night, the more uptight I got. The man next to me kept reaching into a shopping bag and pulling out cans of beer, popping the tops off and methodically glugging them down. How many six packs did he have in there? Finally, perhaps nearing the end of his supply and clearly annoyed, He crushed an empty can with one hand, threw it back in the bag, and belched. I looked down to see if there might be something interesting crawling across the floor. I might have read three poems that evening before I fled into the night. This is my introduction to Jim Brody. And in many ways, the Poetry Project. It was a roller coaster ride with high points and low points and you had two choices, hang on or get off. I did both. In light of what happened last night in America, I think a conversation about community is important for many reasons, not the least being the rather utopian idea that there's some (coughs) place that you can go where you feel safe. I came to the project because I knew that I'd meet poets here, and I did. But I didn't necessarily always feel welcome or safe here, which is one reason why I have little nostalgia to the poetry projects past. Perhaps it had to do with being a young poet who didn't meet the standards or pass the test with those who'd been hanging around the church much longer than I had. Or perhaps it was because I was studying with John Ashbury at Brooklyn College and then he liked my work. He was too uptown, someone told me. Was it because I was pretending to be gay, someone asked? Is that why he liked your work? I bring these things up because it seems to me that the problem that I encountered at the Poetry Project often had to do with personality and power and the willingness to be uncivil. It was a way of reminding me that I had forgotten my place or spoken out of turn, that I was the bad Chinaman. What about the poet who tugged his eyes and asked me in a mocking tone, do you think being Chinese matters to your writing? He was someone who was considered important in the Poetry Project, a strong personality. Presumptions such as these contribute to the death of a community. I have encountered this kind of thing more than once. I've met a lot of people in or around the Poetry Project. I went to lots of great readings. I remember listening to John Cage in the late 70s and thinking this is one of the most amazing things I had ever experienced. I I soaked up whatever I could and was happy to do so. I still have piles of mimeographed books in magazines. I I took a workshop with Bill Zavatsky and had many conversations with different people. I remember sitting in the apartment of Steve Levine and Susie Timmons and feeling comfortable, something that I really felt when I was in my 20s, feeling welcome. I think that's what counts. This morning, (coughs) my daughter is 15, cried while getting ready for school. She said that America had elected a president that hated her and all her friends, and she wanted to know why. I didn't think this was going to be hard to read, but it is. She goes to an all-girls' school, and her friends include (coughs) an adopted Chinese girl, an immigrant from Bangladesh, a girl from Peru, and many others. They speak multiple languages, and they don't look alike. One girl's on the field hockey team, another's into robotics, and another knows the best places to sit in Madison Square Garden when a band is playing. They formed a community that recognizes each of them and their interests, be it music or Alfred Hitchcock movies or anime. I realized she was teaching me by living the life she had chosen in a group, as she put it, that's the most diverse in the school. Maybe that's what I was looking for when I first came to this church. Thank you.
7: I just want to say, if I didn't make it clear before, that uh, in, in originally thinking about this, I thought, well, who, who do I want to have come here and take on these questions? I more thought, who? let's get this group of people together and try to take on the sort of ridiculous question of nostalgia, but also the reality of, like, you know, this place has been here a long time, and it means a lot of things to a lot of people, and it's complicated, and it's difficult. And... Um, you know, and then the, and then things twisted. I I highly recommend in the future if anybody's ever getting asked to do things like don't agree to do things the day after election day. But <laughs> <laughs> don't plan. Uh, uh, but then coming towards having to do this today, um, I thought, well, I'm really glad to get to be here with these folks today, and I'm glad so many of you came and. Let's hang out and talk or not. And thank you so much. And I really appreciate what everybody had to say and did. And now we go forward doing things that we have to do like breathe and drink water (laughs) and not take it. (laughs) Thank you. Um,
2: I just want to personally get up here and thank everybody for for reading. I was really moved by everybody's what everybody had to say and to see so many of you out here and um, please pick up a, a newsletter on your way out and stay and have some wine and talk love Good night.
0: the poetry project has promoted fostered and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966 consider supporting us by checking out a reading becoming a member or donating at poetryproject.org